been for the last uh, several weeks working our way through a series of conversations here on Sunday morning from the book of Exodus. And it's interesting how many parallels there are in the, the story of the horse and the boy with the story of the book of Exodus, including the character of Moses himself, is represented in some of the details of Shasta's life. So let me give you the context. Here's what happens, boys and girls of all ages. Uh, there is a man, his story is in the book of Genesis, actually. There's a man named Jacob, and he has 12 sons. And one of his sons is named Joseph. And Joseph was his father's favorite, and the rest of the boys were a little bit jealous of Joseph, so they sell him into slavery and into a long series of very unlucky circumstances, and we don't believe in luck or circumstances, and through a series of unlucky circumstances and misadventures, he ends up being sold in slavery to Egypt, and somehow he becomes the vice president of the whole country. He saves the country from famine, and he ends up bringing his entire family, his father Jacob, who was later named Israel. That's, by the way, why they're called Israelites or the sons of Israel. He brings his father Jacob to Egypt to be with him and all his brothers. He forgives them, and it's a happy ending. He sets them up in the finest area in all of Egypt, and they begin to flourish but sometime later, there's a Pharaoh who doesn't know anything about Joseph or anything about the promises that were made to Joseph, and he sees the, the Israelite people flourishing and multiplying, and they change their immigration policy dramatically, and they make the Israelites slaves in the land of Egypt. They use and abuse them, and you know, scholars believe that some of the greatest cities in ancient Egypt were built by Israelite labor. Even perhaps some of the pyramids were built by Israelite labor. And so for, for generations, the children of Israel are enslaved in the land of Egypt, and God raises up a hero. His name is Moses. And through a series of incredibly lucky circumstances, Moses ends up being raised in the house of Pharaoh himself. So he knows the Jews, and he knows their ways, and he knows their language, and he knows their God. But he also knows the way of the Egyptian court, and he knows the Egyptian language. At some point later in his life, Moses gets in trouble with Pharaoh, and he ends up having to run for his life. He leaves, he moves to the Midian Desert, and he becomes a Bedouin. And for 40 years, he lives out in the desert, minding his own business. He gets married, he has a family, and then one day he's tending sheep, and he sees this incredible thing. A bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. He's never seen anything like it, so he comes to the bush, and out of the bush, he hears a voice calling to him. And the voice says, I'm God, and I want you to go back to the people that you came from in Egypt, and I want you to lead them to freedom. So Moses goes back to Egypt. He knows Pharaoh and Pharaoh's court. He knows the Israelite people. He says to them, hey, God of our fathers, he spoke to me. His name is, by the way, Yahweh, and he wants us to go free. I'm going to go talk to Pharaoh. They say, awesome. Moses goes and talks to Pharaoh. It does not go well. And then there are a series of confrontations and incredibly 
lucky circumstances where these 10 terrible things happen in Egypt and all of a sudden Pharaoh has had enough and he says, all right, go. So Moses gathers up all of the people and all of their flocks and herds and everything that they've collected over generations and their Egyptian neighbors give them gold and silver and jewels and clothes and they, they pack up and they leave Egypt. They march around in the desert for a while and Pharaoh, Pharaoh begins to lament, what have I done? I've let my entire labor force go free. So he gathers up probably a thousand of his finest chariots and he says, let's go after them. So he charges after them. There's no match between a thousand Egyptian chariots and a band of ragtag slaves. Plus, they wander for a little while and they find themselves up against the Red Sea. They're trapped. Pharaoh realizes it, marshals his forces. They get up near, camp for the night, can't go after the slaves because a giant fog comes between the Egyptians and the Israelites. Lucky circumstance, a fog appears. Of course, the Israelites know it's not a fog. It's the cloud of the Lord. The next morning, another incredible, lucky circumstance, an unbelievable wind divides the Red Sea, and there's a, there's a, 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 a walkway. So God tells Moses, and Moses tells the Israelites, let's walk across. They walk across the Red Sea, some of them rejoicing, others of them, probably like me, terrified, we're going to die, we're going to die. They don't. They get to the other side. The cloud lifts. Pharaoh sees this. There they are on the other side. He sees the walkway through the Red Sea. Let's go. And they charge into the Red Sea bed, and the water returns. Almost no one in the ancient world knew how to swim. So the result of that, a thousand chariots on the seabed of the Red Sea, the water returns to its place, they drown. And the Israelites are ultimately free. And what happens then is that God takes them on a journey to accomplish a number of things in them. Let me tell you three of the most important things that God does on this next whole series of journey, this entire journey that we're about to take over the next several weeks. And as you read the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, this is what God is doing. Number one, God is unifying them. Remember, they were a ragtag group of, of clans, tribes. They really had no identity, and God needed them to have an identity. He needed them to have a unity if they were going to accomplish what he needed them to accomplish. Secondly, God was training them to be his representatives. He was training them to be who he had designed them to be. They needed to know his ways. I love the way one commentary put this. He said, he's training, listen to this, he's training them to understand that if they trusted him and obeyed him, then they would enjoy his benefits. The same is true for us. If we trust him and obey him, then we can enjoy his benefits. And finally, he was establishing them as his people. Specifically, he was building them into an army and a nation. So how was he doing this? I'm gonna give you three things again that God was doing to accomplish these purposes, unifying them, training them, <clears throat> and establishing them as his people. First of all, he was testing them to, to unify them, to train them, and to establish them. God was testing them. This happened at the waters of Mirah. 
might go to slide two. I'm not going to read this entire section of scripture. We're covering about a two, two chapters, more than a chapter and a half this morning, and I'm just going to let you see it. But they, they've wandered for three days away from the Red Sea. They're beginning to get into the real thick of the desert, and they're out of water. <coughs> they see a pool ahead of them, and the pool, they're, they're delighted. They run to the pool, and the pool, the water is not potable. It's bitter. They can't drink it. So what do they do? Now, they know this is not circumstantial, by the way, because they've been following the cloud. The Lord led them to this place. And it's bitter water they can't drink. Their, their water sacks are getting empty. <coughs> Moses, what do we do? Their response is they grumble and whine and complain. I love how Dr. Doug Stewart describes this. He said, the people did not have what they had expected and failed to trust God to provide it. They didn't have what they expected, and they, they, they failed to trust God to provide it. Then he says this, <clears throat> since the Garden of Eden, that has been the formula for disobedience. Since the Garden of Eden, that's been the formula for disobedience. By the way, uh, at the end of the next slide, Mike, that's slide three, I think it is, or four, we learn that they were, they were very close to the springs of Elim, 12 springs, God knew exactly where he was leading them. They just grew impatient. Secondly, he tested them in the desert of sin. That's just the name of the desert. That doesn't mean sin like disobedience to God. He tested them with hunger and no food. Slide three. How did they respond? They got in the desert. They didn't have anything to eat. They grumbled and they whined and they complained. And then... God provided them, and some of you know this story, God provided them with manna in the morning. The word manna, by the way, means what is it? They woke up every morning and there were flakes on the ground like bread. They went out and collected them. Thank you, Leora. And in the evening, there was quail, meat to eat. Every day, God provided them with manna and quail. Plus, throughout this time, they were given very specific instructions for how to use those provisions by the way, many of them disobeyed those instructions. Thirdly, they were tested at the waters of Meribah. Again, they had no water. This is slide 11, Mike. So they continued through the desert of sin towards Sinai, and they began to run out of water again. The, the, this, in this passage, it's not mentioned specifically that this was a test, but we can hardly doubt that it was. And how did they respond? It says, they quarreled with Moses, give us water to drink. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? In other words, they grumbled and whined and complained. God was testing them like metal being tested with fire to strengthen them, like a student being tested to find out how much she knows. But they don't seem to be doing very well at these tests. Secondly, first of all, God was testing them. Secondly, God was building structure for them. God was building structure for them. Specifically, he was building a social infrastructure. He was building moral, spiritual, and even legal structure. Remember, he was unifying them, he was training them, and he was establishing them as his people and his army. So they needed structure. How did he do this? Slide three, Mike. He gave them decrees and laws. I know I'm, I'm blasting through this. Stay with me. We're going somewhere. Secondly, slide four, Mike. He established a Sabbath rhythm for them. 
a daily, a, a weekly rhythm. Each week there was to be one day set aside just for rest and just to spend time with him. And, and finally, through the gathering of the manna and quail each day, God was training them. In a daily rhythm, God was training them to be dependent on him. Do you remember Jesus' model prayer? Uh, give us this day our daily bread. He was testing them. He was building structure around them. And finally, he showed them that he was their provider. Consistently throughout this story, you're going to find that God shows them and us that he's our provider. First of all, he gave them the water at Mira. When they got there, remember the water was bitter. It, it was non-drinkable. God instructed Moses, take a stick, throw it in the water. The bitter water will become sweet, and it did. He found, I wonder what kind of stick that was. God, Moses found a stick, threw it in the water. The water became drinkable. Then, uh, again, at the, in the desert, he gave them manna and quail to eat. And finally, uh, at Mirabah, there was no water. God instructed Moses, hit a rock, stream of water will come out, and it did. All of it was the Lord. He was constantly with them. And God is doing this in our lives as well, always working. All right. <laughs> All that was a setup. Um, I'm going to read a couple of pages from... The horse and his boy. It is a part of uh, a part of the video that they just went over, and I want to reiterate this. I want you guys to hear this again because this is our. If you miss everything else, this is our. Don't miss this point. So remember Shasta, and Shasta has been on a long series of misadventures, boys and girls. Periodically, there's been this lion that's shown up that's terrified him or that has uh, hurt him or hurt his travel mates. And this is what happens. He's gotten lost, by the way. He's lost. He's way up in the mountains. He has no idea where he is or where he's going. He's just following this path because he says it's bound to lead somewhere, and it does lead somewhere. It depends on where that where is. I do think, said Shasta, that I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world. Everything goes right for everyone except for me. Those Narnian lords and ladies got safe from Tashban. I, left behind, I was left behind. Erevis and Bree and Huen are all as snug as anything with that old hermit. Of course, I was the one who was sent on. King Loon and his people must have got safely into the castle and shut the gate long before Rabadash arrived, but I got left out. And being very tired and having nothing inside him, he felt so sorry for himself that the tears rolled down his cheeks. What put a stop to all of this was a sudden fright. Shasta discovered that someone or somebody was walking beside him. It was pitch dark and he could see nothing. And the thing, or the person, was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What, what he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale. And Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature and he'd come to notice this breathing so gradually that he had really no idea how long it had been there. It was a horrible shock. It darted into his mind that he had heard long ago that there were giants in these northern countries. He bit his lip in terror, but now he, was, he really had something to cry about. Now that he really had something to cry about, he stopped crying. The thing, un, un, unless it was a person, went on beside him so quietly that Shasta began to hope he'd only imagined it. But just as he was becoming quite sure of it, there suddenly came a deep, rich sigh out of the darkness beside him. 
That could be imagined. Anyway, he had, he had felt the hot breath of that sigh on his chilly left hand. If the horse had been any good or if he had known how to get any good out of the horse, he wasn't on his horse Bree, he was on a different horse. He would have risked everything in a breakaway wild gallop, but he knew he couldn't make that horse gallop, so he went on at a walking pace and the unseen companion walked and breathed beside him. At last he could bear it no longer. Who are you? He said scarcely above a whisper. One who has waited a long time for you to speak, said the thing. Its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Are you, are you a giant? asked Shasta. You might call me a giant, said the large voice, but I'm not like the creatures you call giants. I can't see you at all, said Shasta, after staring very hard. Then, for an even more terrible idea had come into his head, he said, almost in a scream, you're, you're, not, you're not something dead, are you? Oh, please, please go away. What harm have I ever done you? Oh, oh, I am the unluckiest person in the world. Once more, he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There, it said, that's not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. Shasta was a little reassured by the breath, so he told how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And then he told the story of his escape and how he was chased by lions and, and forced to swim for his life and, and, and of all the dangers in Tashban and about his night among the tombs and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert. He told about the heat and the thirst of the desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and, and wounded Aravis and also how very long it was since he'd had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two on the very first night, and there was only one, but he was very swift of foot. How do you know? I was that lion. And Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing. The voice continued. I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave you the horses, who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so you could reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death so that it came near to the shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. Well, then, then it was you who wounded Erebus. It was I. But what for? Child, said the voice, I'm telling you your story, not hers. I tell no, no one any story but their own. Who are you? Asked Shafta. Myself said the voice very deep and low, so that the earth shook. And again, myself, loud and clear and gay. And then the third time, myself, whispered so softly you could hardly hear it. And yet it seemed to come from all around you as if the leaves rustled with it. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that it was the voice of a ghost, but he knew a new and different sort of fear, and a trembling came over him. 
yet he was glad to. So what we learn from the book of Exodus is that it was always God. It was always God. The voice in the bush was the voice of the Father. The blood on the doorpost was the blood of Jesus. The cloud that led them in the desert was the cloud of the Spirit. It was always God at every moment. And it is in our lives as well. I don't know what lucky circumstance you're facing this morning, but I know that it's God. It's God at work in your life. Through the luck and the unluck and through all of the circumstances, there was only one lion. It's always God. And our job, our only job, our job is not to worry or fret or plan. Our job is to ask, God, what are you up to? What are you doing? Show me your way. Let's pray. Father, train us to hear your voice when it is a gentle, gentle whisper, when it is a loud, almost unrecognizable roar, when you are comforting us, when you are bruising us, all for our good. Train us, Lord. We know that you're testing us to improve us, to show us what's in ourself. We know that you're training us to be who we were designed to be. And we know that you're providing for us. This morning, we, we receive that as your people. Unify us. Build us up. Establish the structure around us that we need so that we can be your representatives. Father, we thank you for uh, the display of your glory this morning through the arts. We pray that you'll bless their ministry. And Lord, we, we, we give you our day. We pray that our agenda for this day would be your agenda for us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.